Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, looking at verses 16 to 23 this morning, page uh, 954 in our Bibles here. In the name of religion, there have been a lot of crazy and even evil things done through the centuries, you may be well aware. People followed cult leader Jim Jones to the point of drinking cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. That was 1978, if you happen to recall that experience. There have been televangelists who are claiming to do miracles, and it turns out they staged them. A lot of crazy things. Even believers sometimes get caught up, swept up in following some of these people because of their personality or attraction to what they they teach. Could you be susceptible to someone who twists the truth if because of their personality or something about their message appeals to you? Paul is writing to the Colossians in AD 60 and is describing kind of a combination of heresies that seem to have been prevalent in that area. They're not all the same thing, but there's some overlap, but kind of three strains of truth-twisting. We could call them legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. We want to walk through those today and make sure that we understand truth and would recognize when it's being twisted. Verse 16 and 17 describe a kind of Jewish legalism. Paul says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. There was evidently, especially among the Jewish population of the area, uh, false teachers that were maintaining that the Old Testament law must be kept, obeyed, and maintained. Even though this is some 30 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and the Old Testament ceremonial law had expired because Christ fulfilled the law. But they were saying you still need to do these things. And Paul says don't let anybody judge or require you to do these things. Here's some examples of He lists five of them of what they were saying should still be done. You should still keep the food laws. You probably are familiar with the fact that under the Old Testament Levitical law, there was clean and unclean foods. Uh, Many of the unclean foods don't even appeal to us. Uh, You've probably never eaten crow, except in the metaphorical sense. But uh, you just may have eaten bacon. That was on that list too. But those... Food prohibitions had expired, and Acts 10, Christ revealed in a vision to Peter that all food was now clean. So you're all right with the bacon and pork chops. 
Secondly was drink laws. Not sure, there weren't terrible many of these, but it could refer to the fact that you needed to drink water out of uh, vessels that were not contaminated, especially if they were used ceremonially. There'd be good medical reason for that, as well as the illustration of staying as far away and safe from evil influences. Could have referred to the fact that some of the priests... Uh, or rather the priests, were not supposed to drink at all. This is a culture where it was normal to drink uh, wine in moderation, but priests functioning in their duties were to drink not at all, kind of like the way we like our airline pilots to, to function before their flights. Jewish festivals, they were requiring them. There was a lot of positive tradition around the festivals, Passover, etc., but they needed to stop doing them the writer to Hebrews, New Testament said, because that always the, the centerpiece was sacrifice, and Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we can't keep doing the festivals like we've been doing them and do those sacrifices. Probably similar to the issue of months or new moons. Each beginning of the month, the Jews, Leviticus again, we're, we're supposed to blow the trumpets, call people to the, to the, to the temple or tabernacle, and, and celebrate with a sacrifice. These things were confusing the gospel. The writer to Hebrews was saying that that sacrificial issue has got to stop because Christ's death was sufficient. He fully paid for it. It is finished. And then finally, the Sabbath, requiring believers in Christ, New Testament, same age we live in, requiring them to keep the Sabbath, when in fact we know that they were worshiping now, believers were worshiping on the first day of the week, Sunday, as we are today, Acts 20, verse 7, if you're interested in an example of that. So there was nothing really wrong with these laws when they were in effect. But these ceremonial laws had been fulfilled and now had expired. They were, in fact, verse 17, a shadow of things that were to come. And then that last phrase in verse 17, you may have the term the reality or the substance, or literally it is the word body if you have that, because it's illustrating that uh, the law, the ceremonial laws were like a shadow. If there was big stage lights here, you'd see me, and then you'd see my shadow there. They were the shadow. Christ is here. That's, that's the reality. So, Let's be sure to focus on the reality. That's what the book of Colossians is about, to acknowledge Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the creator of the world. He is our savior, our redeemer. He is the supreme one. Some of these laws help to protect people in the Old Testament from contamination, from danger, uh, from being taken advantage of. And, uh, man, if you take away all those rules... What is it going to control people? That would be the question. That would be the appeal that some would have. You need these rules. And so we find this is a big issue. This is a big problem, actually, in Galatia when Paul wrote this some, what, 10 years earlier than Colossians. And so we find that God in this New Testament age has prescribed a reason because what the law couldn't do, Christ is doing. Here's what controls behavior now. For example, love. Galatians 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. He says, you know, don't be, don't be enslaved under the yoke of, of the law. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's the temptation is, you have freedom? That means I can do anything I want, right? No, not at all. But rather, through love, serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're driving down the freeway in I-43 and the speed limit says 75, 70, how fast do you want to go? At least 75. 80. I, I hear, do I hear more? 80. <laughs> There's something about a rule that makes us want to break it, doesn't it? So, so the rules don't really guide behavior anyhow. On our, the little court we live on, Meadow Court, uh, I don't think there's any speed limit sign ever posted there. I assume it's 25 or so. I doubt that I've ever really broken that. I may have. But do you know why? Because my kids have been running around there for many years. Now my grandkids and other people's kids. And love controls my speed on Meadow Court. And so we have to understand that requiring something doesn't make someone want to do it. Love makes us want to do it. And, and Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us. Transformation is internal. So this sounds good, but where's the power? What's going to actually create the, 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 the ability, capacity to do this? So Paul told the Galatians, it's the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We are all in need probably of all of those, but some of those might stand out to us. That's what I really need. You don't have the power, even though you're a believer in Christ, unless you lean upon the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so the problem with rules is they have no power. The problem with rules is that sometimes then we can think that, okay, if, I, if we make it a rule, that'll make people do it, and we can begin to judge other people because they don't do something, and they don't have power. The rules are for the immature. And so we have to have rules for our children. And if you, you know, you're working in a school, you have to have rules because this needs to guide behavior, reinforce behavior, but what, what we're hoping is they'll grow up and become mature where they would do these things without rules. And we don't want to perpetuate a spiritual immaturity in our children or in our churches, in that everything is guided by a rule because they're powerless. Ultimately, the solution is found in our relationship to Christ. And so, Galatians 2, 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And basically what that means is the principle of grace. It's kind of a interesting, we call it, this is the only place I think it's called this, but the law of Christ is like the in quotes, the law of Christ. It's the not law law. It's the anti-law. It's the opposite of the law because now it is the grace of Jesus Christ. And to get a good understanding of that, we have to probably always go back to the first chapter of Colossians, uh, chapter 1, 10 through 14, which explains kind of the spiritual life in a nutshell. He says, I pray that you would uh, want to please the Lord in every way, walking worthy giving thanks, bearing fruit. Why? Look at verse 14, chapter 1. Because he's rescued you from the dominion of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the reason we would want to live to please the Lord is because we are overwhelmed with gratitude, the fact that he forgave our sins and brought us into a relationship. We are now part of his eternal kingdom. We are rescued from the kingdom of darkness. So grace enables and motivates us to do that which the law rules never could. 
That was the first kind of false teaching, Jews requiring law, thinking that's going to keep everybody in line. It won't. Second kind of false teaching in Colossae was a problem we could call, in a general sense, mysticism. Uh, The problem with mysticism is that it appealed essentially to the emotions, to the emotions. And that's a a real connecting point for, for many, many people. Do not, verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. The main uh, part of the sentence is uh, this phrase, do not let anyone disqualify you. So don't be, don't be thrown off, don't be distracted. The word disqualify is actually from the first century sports world. The idea of uh, some judge at an athletic competition judging whether something qualifies or doesn't. It's like the referee. You know, you can have this great play and go down there, but you catch the ball... 40 yards down the field, but you're out of bounds. It's a wasted play. You hit the ball, and it's left of the foul pole, and it's just a long second strike. He says you don't want to invest in a, a, a life spiritually that ends up being worthless because it's declared disqualified. You'd be wasting... And, these, and, and it's these false teachers... And it's a little difficult to understand exactly what the, the error was there, but there was part of it was angel worship. There was a false humility. This humility is kind of this false kind of acting hum, humble, but actually their unspiritual mind puffs them up. But this, this um, reference to the angel worship, best we can tell, there was a, a sect of quasi-Christian ideas that you couldn't approach God personally. You need to go through intermediaries. But instead of focusing on Christ, they focus on angels. So you need to have like visions and, and experiences with angels, something we are never told to pursue. And so there's something about, it says, they go into great detail what I've seen. And so you can almost picture that, you know, boy, you know, and and so some impressive uh, leader says, I've had these great experiences with angels and I saw these visions and I was in this trance and, and you can never, you can never disprove someone's experience, can you? And if it's a very emotional, heart-tugging experience, it draws us to them, and, and there'll always be a following. And they can tell the story. I was just, oh, I was so humbled by this experience I had, and a few tears trickled down their, their face, and, and, and people follow that. Paul says what's actually going on is that their unspiritual mind is puffing them up with idle or worthless notions. How would following some of these kind of people disqualify true believers? The danger would be that they would be drawn away from the basic issues of the Christian life, love, the Holy Spirit, and the centrality of Jesus Christ. They would be impressed, and they would try to replicate their experiences. Don't you sometimes wish that you had the same emotional experiences spiritually that other people did? We begin to substitute the emotion with reality. In a relationship with Christ, you may well experience many emotions. God made us emotional. And so if you experience emotions, great. It's 
For some, it's during times of public worship and music. For others, it's in personal, private time. Your emotions are your business, and your emotions are probably more related to your personality. But do not consider yourself spiritually deficient if you don't experience those emotions. Do not consider yourself spiritually superior if you do. Because the central issue is obedience. The central issue is devotion to Christ, not emotions from Christ. So don't be disqualified and distracted. And yet this term disqualification sounds like there is a a, a win, a reward, a prize. What would be the reward, the prize, the prize that we could be disqualified from if we pursue experience over the reality of Christ? He seems, I think, to make allusion to what he teaches elsewhere, the fact that as believers, there is something special awaiting us for our devotion to Christ. Rewards. Rewards in some ways, which to me boil down to the issue of God telling us, well done. I can't imagine anything that could be more amazing than to hear God's personal approval. In 1 Corinthians, Paul described it this way, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus Christ. So uh, everything has to emerge from the centrality of the cross and Christ and our relationship with him. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, you know, so we're in a metaphor, right? We're in a, we're in a, we're in a picture here. You're building a life. So this is your life as a believer. This is your ministry as a believer, your service. If anyone builds on this foundation, Christ, using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work, their life ministry, will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It'll be revealed by fire, with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Kind of the not knowing what it is makes it almost even more exciting to realize that there is some way in which God will personally acknowledge us. Notice in the, in the, in the illustration, there are six types of building materials. The first three and the last three are very different. If your house burns down and you had gold, silver, or precious stones, when you go through the ashes, you will find the gold, silver, and the precious stones, but you will not find the wood, hay, and straw. They are the ashes. And so he says, make sure you build on something that will last. And in another passage, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, what God's looking at is motives. So what's going to be tested is not the, the size of your work or ministry or how many people you whatever, but rather the test the quality. First Corinthians 4, 4, the motives, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So don't be distracted by those who would disqualify you with, with, with this stuff, this fluff that, that is, is not reality. That's wood, hay, and straw. Why do people become teachers of these crazy ideas? Verse 19. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. In the process of describing what these false teachers do not do, 
he is actually telling us what we must do, how spiritual growth really happens. How does it happen? The last line says, this, this is how the body, that's you and me, the church, grows. So the head, keep the picture in mind, the head is Christ, and the body of Christ is us. The church, which only is expressed really through the local church. So how do we grow as God causes it to grow? It's through connection to the head. So these guys have lost connection. It's kind of a jarring metaphor to be disconnected from the head. But they're trying to puff themselves up, verse 18. They are trying to be spiritual rock stars, which you can't be because Christ is the head. And any body that has more than one head is grotesque. So don't try to be any more heads to the body of Christ. But rather recognize rightly who you are. We are ligaments. We're joints. We're, we're pieces of the body. And God grows us, how? Through connection to Christ and connection to the body of Christ. You see both of those there? Connection to head, the head, Christ, and connection to one another, the body of Christ. That is how we grow. So you will not grow if you say you're only connected to Christ but not his body. Growth happens by connection to Christ and his body. You can't say I need Christ but I don't need the church because there are so many crazy people in the church. You know, This is where all the problems are. It doesn't happen that way. Growth is a process involving both. It's like saying to your spouse, I love you. I just don't want to sit next to you. I love you, I just don't want to be around you. Because you cannot separate Christ from his body and say, I love one, but not uh, the other. And and the real danger uh, of trying to live an isolated Christian life is that we will be susceptible to these very things and, and, and we can develop our own little cult of ideas. You know, just me and Christ at home, me and Christ in the woods, me and Christ on the boat, whatever. Uh, motorcycle, just throw that in. Uh, it's not just you and Christ. It's you and Christ and the body of Christ. And if you have children, they will, they will develop their view of Christ and the body of Christ based on your view of Christ and the body of Christ. It's how we grow. So we need all the strange people in this room. We need the, the newer, the experienced, the weaker, the stronger, those who think different, those who look different. And somehow God does one of his greatest miracles by causing us to grow because we're all, if we're understanding, we're ligaments and sinews. And God uses every single person by their, by their giftedness, by their experience, by their failures, by their testimony, by their prayer requests. And that's why you need to be connected. And that's why the writer to Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together as is the habit of some, but rather stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You only experience that as you know one another, hear one another, and indeed you then support and hold them together. So the issue of emotion could draw people off track from what really is spiritual growth, which is being connected to Christ and his church. Legalism, mostly Jewish in nature. Mysticism, this angel worship craziness they had there. The third one we could call in a generic sense asceticism. And that idea is don't 
adopt a harsh self-denial view of the spiritual life. This overlaps somewhat in concept with legalism because it tends to be rule-based. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and human teaching. These these rules are not going to last. It's just people's ideas. Such regulations, verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value. Here's what they don't do. They lack any value in restraining sensual, that's fleshly, sin nature, indulgence. Uh, Verse 20, died with Christ to basic principles. It's alluding to our new position in Christ. Same terminology as back in chapter, same chapter, verse uh, 12. We talked last week about being buried with Christ in baptism and and identifying with his death and resurrection. You are a new person, and so the old things no longer apply, be it Jewish, be it some other false uh, ascetic idea, self-denial thing. Sometimes Christians confuse self-control with self-denial. They're different things. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is something that the Spirit produces because we either need to avoid something completely or, or, or limit something that we, we do in excess. We all kind of know areas we need self-control. Amen? So that's a spiritual thing that only the Holy Spirit can produce that kind of control. Self-denial that these false teachers are advocating is prompted not by the Spirit, but by the flesh or the sin nature. It's it's this kind of this rigid, harsh, uh, sometimes self-hurt that was practiced. And you've maybe heard of some of those extremes, pilgrims who go to Rome and they climb the holy stairs on their knees, hoping to induce pain because pain somehow produces in their mindset uh, spiritual merit. Monks sitting on a hill or in some extreme cases sitting on top of a pole, depriving themselves of any human you know, goodness, uh, in the name of, of, of spiritual merit. Uh, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism all teach different forms of self-denial of good things for spiritual merit in their mindset. And often in the name of Christianity, the Philippines has a lot of this where you, you, can, you can watch videos of, of during Holy Week, these, these young men are taking these whips and whipping themselves and some even going to the extreme of being crucified on Good Friday and uh, taken down, hopefully, short of death. What's going on? There's this uh, perverse sense of somehow that we must punish ourselves when we understand the, 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 the reality of guilt and how that makes people feel. And, and sometimes people do, and we know, hurt themselves because of that deep sense of guilt, because they don't understand what Christ has done for them. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, and it was finished, and we stand forgiven and free in Him. But these become then, for some, attractive things to follow this ascetic lifestyle. Paul addressed it uh, to Timothy, where he was serving uh, in Ephesus, about 100 miles from Colossae. 
The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So don't misunderstand where this is ultimately sourced. It's demonic. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. I was listening on the radio this past week, a discussion that was, was there about the, the church, the, the, the Catholic church, and, and that uh, should priests be allowed to marry. I understand, kind of a practical thing going on now there. When did the Bible ever forbid marriage? Um, Paul the Apostle, sometime brought up an example, he chose uh, voluntarily to be single because of God's call on his life. He felt that he should indeed uh, focus fully on the ministry. But he's the one who pointed out in 1 Corinthians 9 that Peter was married, other apostles have wives that they bring along with them. And we know Peter was married from Mark 1.30 because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. It's the only way you get a mother-in-law is by marrying someone. Self-denial is not a, a path or proof of holiness. Is there a biblical sense of self-denial? Yes, if you are self, if you're denying yourself sacrificially for the benefit of someone else out of love because God has led you to. So uh, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church means there's a, lot, there's a lot of sacrifice involved in love. Serve one another. So are we to deprive ourselves of good things? Paul went on to describe explained to Timothy how to deal with those in the church who were wealthier. And probably, if you think by global standards, that's almost everybody in this room, right? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. That's very important. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, but instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So basically what he's saying is, you have things. God has given you material things. Don't be conceited about it like I did it to myself. I gave it to myself because it's God who gave it to you. So first of all, humility. And then don't be afraid to realize that God gave you some things to enjoy. But then also realize that what you're instructed to do is to be generous and willing to share. And that becomes a a biblically accurate uh, view of material things. Different times, Paul would say, I've had plenty. I've been in want. Uh, And he'd been in serious. He'd been in serious want. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a lot of uh, good things about kind of the modern movement to uh, be minimalistic. Acquainted with that term? A lot of good things. My garage, I know, needs to be minimalized. And a few other places as well, because our society has urged us to uh, indulge and supersize and accumulate. And so there may be very legitimate ways in which God leads us to reduce and simplify. We just need to be aware that in our own heart, we could begin to do so and cross a line, not of self-control, but self-denial, that this makes me somehow superior, maybe even spiritually. And I think Paul was telling Timothy, there's a way in which God is going to 
speak to us to make sure that we don't just live and indulge and accumulate. It's called giving. Because it's, it's a way in which God calls us all to consistently and sacrificially reduce our finances by giving. Because if you give it to somebody else, you don't have it anymore. So you give to somebody who has need. You give to purpose of the kingdom. And so there, there, there's like this balanced view of understanding. Everything comes from God. It's okay to enjoy, but I am called then to be generous. The basic point is you look at verse 21 of these ascetics was that somehow by not doing things, they were holy. Don't base holiness on what you don't do. It may be part of the picture, but holiness is a positive. Back to chapter 1, verse 10. Walk worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit. That's not a negative, but saying, you know, if I'm going to bear fruit, there are some things in my life that are going to get in the way, and so I'm going to have to develop some 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 clear uh, boundaries of things that I can't do because I want to live holy and devoted to the Lord. But don't base your holiness on that which you don't do. This is, I think, true particularly in the area of convictions. There are, of course, Many absolutes, we often have distinguished between absolutes and convictions. Absolutes are those things which are true, uh, biblically right or wrong, always, every culture, all the time. Convictions are those things that God develops in us so that we can make choices personally about that which is wise and right for us. And so there may be things, and we need to develop convictions about that which is harmful, uh, maybe spiritually for us, or harmful in its impact to somebody else, but we have to be careful not to make that a rule for somebody else in this realm of convictions. They are human commands and teachings, and clearly what, what the ascetics did was kind of develop a long list of rules. You, you may have found yourself at times wanting to develop a list of rules for yourself. You may have uh, experienced the teaching of others or just the impression of some Christians, sadly, that seem to be living life based on I'm okay because of all the things I don't do. We have to be aware of that. Sometimes we are attracted to a rule-based thinking because we uh, tell ourselves, this is the only thing that will keep me in line. I need my rules. Prisons are for people who need to be kept in line. They have proven themselves to be rule-breakers, so we incarcerate them. And they don't break those rules in there, but we don't know if there's been an internal transformation. And you will never know until they are released and now they have their freedom whether there is a change of behavior. And see, that's the issue in verse 23. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom and their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body. So it can sure look like holiness when people you know, are trying to live by rules, but they lack any value in restraining sensual or fleshly indulgence. So it won't change your heart. It might for a while keep you in line like a, like a prison, but it won't change your heart. So what does change hearts? And we go back to the one ultimate resource, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit who does what rules cannot do 
So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. So all of us know this battle. What my flesh wants, what God by His Holy Spirit is saying to us, but we need to walk in the Spirit. And it's as, it's as, it's as regular as you must depend on your left foot and then your right foot and your left foot. And, and the Spirit is both feet. And <laughs> we must live in dependence on Him. So if, if we do not think about the person of the Holy Spirit in our life for days on end, there's a danger we've been living by the flesh and we would be drawn and distracted away by false teaching. Because this is how we walk in the Spirit. Because if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You don't need the rules anymore. Because the Spirit is now guiding you. There's so many reasons why we can be attracted to falsehood. Sometimes, uh, by nature, we, we, just, we hear somebody say something that is kind of rigid and harsh. And you know, it's because we're kind of rigid and harsh, and so we kind of like that. Or another kind of person, they hear something that's very emotional, experiential, and and that's appealing. And do you know your own heart? That you're not appealed, you're not attracted to the rules, you're not attracted to the emotions. You are attracted and drawn to the person of Christ, and are willing to to lean on your position in Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit to walk in gratefulness for His grace and living to please the Lord. That's His call to us. Let's pray together and then Seth will come with some announcements. Heavenly Father, we are uh, dependent on You to keep teaching, keep uh, drawing us to that which is uh, true and real, that which has been consistent since You gave Your Spirit to the church that which is always uh, true and revealed in your word and accessible to us. Help us not to be drawn away. I pray for any of us here who are uh, dabbling in twisted truth. You just give us clarity and that your spirit and your truth would speak to us. May we focus on that which is, is, is most important and which is always true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.